Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Michael Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and usually I am joined by my partner in crime, John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. But today, I'm flying solo. John is off flogging, dare we say, flogging his brand new book, Defender in Chief, a study of Donald Trump and the Constitution. And we are going to talk with John on the Pacific Century about that very soon. Uh, But today, uh, we are without John, unfortunately. So we'll have much less discussion about food and fine dining, but probably get more to the serious stuff. Now, I said that I was flying solo, but actually that is incorrect. I am the wingman today and proud to be the wingman of Assistant Secretary of State Dave Stilwell. Uh, The reason I say wingman is because those of you who know Dave, and everyone should if you watch Asia, know that he's actually General Dave, Brigadier General David Stilwell, 35-year career in the U.S. Air Force, was the Asia advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was a Korean linguist, and then expanded out to China and Japan. Dave was the defense attache at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, 2011 to 2013, and most recently, uh, before heading over to state, became the director of the China Strategic Focus Group at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command uh, in Hawaii, 2017 to 2019. Uh, He has, uh, most importantly, he's a historian, got his bachelor's degree in history from the U.S. Air Force Academy way back, I won't say what year, and then a master in uh, Asian studies from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, but most importantly, Assistant Secretary Stilwell is one of the key core central driving forces between among the group that is changing American policy towards China, a revolution, we might say, in U.S.-China relations that has been unfolding the past three years and which the tempo of it seems to be increasing lately. So we are absolutely thrilled that Assistant Secretary Stilwell has joined the Pacific Century. Welcome. Hey, Misha, thank you for the generous introduction. Well, we, uh, we have a lot to talk about and not a lot of time, so I'd like to jump right into it. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm gonna switch between calling you Assistant Secretary and Your Highness and then Dave maybe occasionally. Uh, but maybe what we can do to begin with is scope down and and get to something that uh, everybody was actually quite shocked with and and was redolent, if we can say that, of the Cold War, which was the shutting down of the Chinese consulate in Houston last week and the order by the Chinese to shut down our consulate in Chengdu. Um, does shutting down the consulate actually do anything? Does it does it really make a dent in Chinese spying uh, capabilities? Why did we do it now? And conversely, how bad does shutting down our Chengdu consulate hurt us? Uh, yes, 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 and then we'll talk about it. So the decision uh, was a, a product of a very long period of negotiation and effort uh, on the part of everybody on this account, from the president to the secretary on down, to get the PRC to understand just how serious we are about getting this relationship in a position that is truly mutually beneficial. I mean, to use their own language, uh, you know, with something that is mutual respect, 
treating our folks in China the same way we treat them here, mutual respect, mutual benefit, having access to everything, which is what we generously allow them without getting that in return, and in short, reciprocity. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. As far as timing, uh, you know, I had 14 months from the time I was uh, nominated to the time I was confirmed, and I had a long time to think about this when I was in Hawaii. And, I, you know, the, the, the idea is pick a strategy that is not too complicated, that's relatively simple, that everybody can understand, and then very deliberately, without emotion, but um, strategically work through steps, uh, increasingly, um, 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 what's the word, in, 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 you know, it, with increasing attention, grabbing uh, capability on the Chinese to get their attention and let them know that the game is changed. We are not, you know, look, I've got a coffee table here full of, of, of magazines that talk about the slow evolution of American foreign policy in realizing that the uh, Chinese Communist Party's intent is not as fuzzy panda as it would seem. And so we, the secretary went out last uh, August to New York to meet with Yang Jiechi, came away, the, the, as we said, the, the Chinese were not forthcoming. We did it again in Hawaii in June uh, last month. Again, didn't bring anything. They're expecting us to give, to get to meet them uh, in the relationship. And we've made it very clear that's not going to happen. So uh, the, the strategy, as I said, is one of reciprocity. We want the same things that they are getting here. Uh, and I, I was telling you that one of the happier days uh, in this job was when I read your op-ed, uh, Trump's New Realism on China identifying that, no, we're not just shooting, you know, this is not ready shoot aim. This is a very deliberate process in terms of reciprocity uh, to get the PRC to acknowledge, to live up to its commitments that, that it repeatedly fails on, Hong Kong being just the most recent. Uh, and, and there's a whole slew of things that go with that. Um, and I'll leave it at that. So, so why Houston? Uh, as I said in my remarks, and as the Justice and FBI followed up with on the next day after I talked to the New York Times, their activities in Houston were particularly egregious. And that's because we're a free and open country and we don't, it's not a police state. We don't surveil everybody moving around. We trust they're going to live up to their Vienna Convention requirements and, and limitations. Uh, when we ask them to stop, that they will. And in this case, they just thumb their nose at us. And Houston was, as you know, um, related to the MD Anderson Medical Center, Moffitt in Tampa. These are all inside the Houston Consul General's uh, region of responsibility. And it was clear since Corona that the Chinese have really upped the game on trying to get a vaccine. So although blamed, and they know they're blamed for uh, the cover-up that, that led to this disaster, they're going to try to salvage the situation by coming across as a savior, whether it's through delivering PPE uh, in their own particular way, or whether it's coming up with the vaccine that saves the world. And so they're busily trying to get into everything you can to be the first to market with a vaccine. That was very much uh, uh, relevant in the Houston case over. So uh, why not uh, San Francisco? Uh, this is where we need John. I mean, John probably can tell us his encounters with Chinese intelligence folks around San Francisco. Clearly, if we're looking at uh, Silicon Valley, and we're looking at the crown jewels. I mean, there's the immediacy of coronavirus, but so I guess you know part of it is just a, a provocative. Why not San Francisco? And another part is, are you going to do more? Does does I mean, if if this doesn't change behavior, do do you go farther? Because reciprocity is designed, of course, to to calibrate uh, what the response is on the other side. And so if they don't change, 
Uh, are you forced to go more? Meaning, is it a slippery slope? Uh, how much do you have your hand on the throttle with it? And and again, why not San Francisco? Uh, to the the choice of um, consul, you know, consulates, uh, it was deliberate, and uh, it was as much to knock off this and let them know that we were not happy and that this is taking action. We tried words, words weren't working, so we're taking action. And we considered pretty much as you would expect the entire uh, pantheon of activity in this country. And, uh, and we picked this one for a very good reason. Are there more? Uh, uh, everything, as I said before, we are considering everything. We, Looked at their response to this, though, and it was as expected. They, we definitely got their attention. And we now will begin the process of trying to get them to approach a, a, a discussion on the bigger picture of reciprocity now that we have demonstrated both capability and intent uh, to defend ourselves. And that's the, the basis of this. And I, like I said, very straightforward. Uh, I, by trying to be too esoteric and nuanced, you end up getting confused. So we're being very straightforward on this. One of the issues is that the administration seems very clearly to have decided um, that it's all in, in, in a sense. I mean, it, this is the first administration to try to impose costs, um, but the, the pushback is very strong, and yet you have done it over and over. Um, one of the big ones that people are looking at is Hong Kong. Uh, can you tell us where we stand with Hong Kong? Because uh, it, it has gone so rapidly uh, that we have seen crackdowns, books being taken out of libraries, um, civil society groups disbanding, the law being extended even retroactively. Where are we with uh, in our response to Hong Kong and how worried are you that whatever we're doing, uh, Hong Kong may be in essence lost? Well, I would say that um, we took strong action in the beginning, and it, not just the administration, the Hill's involved too, right? Hong Kong Autonomy Act, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, Hong Kong Policy Act. This is a great account to have, by the way, because uh, the Republican, Democrat, Hill administration, it doesn't matter. Everyone agrees that it's long overdue. This is things that have to happen. Look, Hong Kong, the best tool we have if you look at the top of my day planner uh, there, every month at the top I write, multilateralize. This is not just the US versus China. They would love to portray it like that. This is the world holding China to its commitments. And it committed to 50 years and it bailed at 23. And you've seen Australia come on strong. You've seen the UK. You've seen a lot of, not just five eyes either, a lot of countries have also noted that, you know, if you're not gonna live up to the simplest of agreements, how can you be expected to follow through on, on important ones, other important ones that affect us directly? Uh, and so, as I said, you know, Hong Kong, I don't think is over. I, I, they're making what I think are some very bad and, and uninformed decisions. I don't know if there's a feedback loop right now in the, in the PRC. In the past, they would have done something like this. They would gotten this pushback and then you would have had a period of uh, a little withdrawal and then rethink. Uh, and, and allowing, you know, assess what just happened. And you don't see that. You mentioned the pace of operations here. Uh, the pace is, is very quick. Uh, in general, I think we, we are, uh, I'm happy to feel like uh, the U.S. side has taken the initiative for a change. Um, but it's, it's both sides are playing at this. And, and the pace that you saw Hong Kong go from the time it was hinted at during the National People's Congress to the time it rolled out on 1 July, 
to where we are today, where we're just arresting people on the streets, is a far faster pace than anyone imagined, at least in my office. And so we're, uh, we're standing on principle, we're insisting uh, on they living up to their commitments, and we're working with like-minded to make sure that the PRC understands that this isn't just the U.S. I think that's an important point. I just want to, to draw you out a little bit and ask about the cooperation you're getting, and not just cooperation, but but planning. Um, you're seeing, uh, so, you know, a decade ago, we people talked about the Quad, uh, Australia, Japan, uh, U.S., uh, and India didn't go as far as we wanted. Um, but now you're, you're seeing, again, this uh, whether it's in actions such as uh, the U.S. doing naval exercises with India simultaneously, it's doing it with Japan and Australia. Uh, you have groups uh, like the Halifax International Security Forum, which is doing a report calling for democracies to join together in trying to figure out how to deal with China or Britain's policy exchange, which wants to do sort of similar uh, gathering of, uh, of liberal states. It seems that the time has come where people are now thinking about joint action, whereas Beijing's preference was always bilateral because it could bring so much weight to bear. How much are you actually planning with others, or is it just sort of reflexive that everybody's beginning to help each other? I would like to say, and I know in, in this building it's the case, and Matt Pottinger and the National Security Council and all those other players in this, in this um, effort have thought this through quite well, actually. And they've made it very clear. I mean, if you look at the Indo-Pacific strategy and a number of other documents that have flowed since the national security strategy, I, I would, I would, the fact that you're asking that tells me it may not be as clear as, as we think it is. It's clear in our minds where it's going. And that includes, as you mentioned, with organizations, multilaterals, G7, Quad, all these other things, ASEAN. If you saw on the South China Sea policy update, uh, the support from the ASEANs, and even before we announced that, you saw that Vietnam and the uh, and the ASEANs uh, made a very strong statement on the code of conduct and Chinese activity in the South China Sea. So, uh, yes, the U.S. is you know looked to for leadership. Yes, the world from where I sit does appreciate uh, American leadership, and also you have to put some of the credit in the Beijing's lap for taking actions that has taking people out of a position where they don't make us choose and realizing they're being in a position, they're being forced into a position to choose. And that choice is for their own sovereignty, uh, for their own uh, choice in government and processes, or uh, a choice that says you're going you're gonna to cede all of that to uh, a government that seemingly knows better and is trying to adjust global governance to a form where you don't get a choice. And, and the folks in Beijing are going to make that choice for you. It's a pretty simple choice for us. It looked not too long ago, like actually some of the choices that you were just talking about were not going our way. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically uh, about um, 5G. Looking at um, 5G, um, it seems to have turned now uh, a little bit towards us, particularly with the UK deciding uh, that that Beijing will not be allowed in or Huawei will not be allowed in. Um, where do you feel that the 5G um, battle stands? And, and more importantly, what is the plan for us to actually begin playing in it as opposed to simply trying to block the Chinese from here? It's a, it's a combination of things. And I, I will point to, and I will always point to, the lead that we were given, the head start we were given in Australia from folks like uh, Prime Minister Turnbull, John Garneau, Clive Hamilton, 
And we just did Osmonds this week, and it continues. The Aussies have been very strong uh, allies in this in this process. And and they talk about you know Garneau talks about sunshine, about just transparency. And that's the language we're using is transparency. Is looking at is taking examples of these supposedly good deals that you know couldn't possibly be what they're being sold as. Going and and going back and doing the assessment and what actually happened and then playing that back for the rest of the world is sort of a cautionary tale that this is not all it's cracked up to be, that uh, the connections between business and government are in the PRC are not what, you, what they are in the rest of the world. These are state-owned enterprises and they do act behest. One of the things, and the PRC has been helpful in this and that they advertise things like the intelligence law that demands that all Chinese companies will share what they have with the PRC government and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, there is no such thing in, in this part of the world. The, um, businesses are truly independent. In fact, when you try to force them to do that, they come out loud and strong and say, you know, that's censorship, that's government uh, overreach and all that stuff. You don't hear that coming out of the PRC. So we'll, we'll take a lot of credit for that. If, and if you haven't talked to Keith Kroc, the guy who runs the uh, Environment, uh, Energy and Economic Bureau, he's, he is all over that. And you know him from your time in San Francisco. Um, he can talk at length about the 5G campaign and all the rest. I'm just saying that it's it, we'll give credit on both sides. One, uh, the fact that the deal wasn't quite what it cracked up to be uh, and that we had the good sense to uh, play that back to them and identify that these systems would not be secure. And then you look at what the Chinese are using these systems for in Xinjiang. You, know, you saw the John Oliver piece here recently. Uh, I mean, it's just obscene, 13 tons of human hair. Uh, showing up on American shores as beauty products, that's, uh, you know, you automatically revolt when you see those things. That's actually probably, I, I was going to ask you about the South China Sea, and I do want to get there, but but that's actually a, a really good point to bring up, which is the human rights issue. Um, uh, prior administrations uh, have downplayed the human rights issue uh, for Secretary Pompeo and the, uh, the commission, I think it's on inalienable rights, I am not sure I have the name exactly right, uh, it actually, which is a lot of which is religious freedom, but it's other things really has been has been central. How much of that, um, I don't want to say is directed at China, but how much of that was developed with China in mind? Where are we on the, the question of, of human rights uh, in China, what we see happening, which people are now calling a genocide in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs? Uh, what we see in Tibet and other places as well. Can can you sort of give us a human rights update, which has been a little bit lost in in the midst of coronavirus and some other things? Uh, I, I could talk for an hour on this. Um, we we the U.S. and the West, the free world, um, has the ability to self-criticize. In fact, in Xi Jinping's 2013 speech that was released like five years later, if you remember that one. He noted that our, our world, our system is self-correcting. It was actually one of the better statements about the beauties of our system as he's building a case for his own system. It was ironic. Um, take a look at that. Read that speech again. I think it was January 13 it came out. And he talks about our system is self-correcting. Why? And I would tell my counterparts this in China all the time as they were going through their, the beginnings of that uh, anti-corruption campaign is I said, we don't do anti-corruption campaigns in the U.S. because we have a free media, a free press. We have folks like you know, Josh Rogan, we have folks in New York Times, whose entire life is to identify things that are going wrong and, and shine a light on those things for the American public and, and for 
for all the right reasons and for commercial reasons as well. But it's a really beautiful system because it self-corrects. It also, that system um, oftentimes paints government decisions in the not quite as positive light as you might, you know, if you were taking a purely objective look. And so we, the first step, the first thing we do is look at the probably the worst case of why we're taking uh, steps. But when the government does those things over repeatedly and again and again and again, uh, yeah, I mean, that's good. Let's, let's be as critical of ourselves as possible. One thing I really am hitting on in this job uh, is critical thought. When we can get to that later about the importance of teaching critical thought again because we've stopped doing it and we've got to get back to that. Um, but I like the fact that the media and others, and in the case of the, you know, the part of the, you know, the two systems, Democrat, Republican, is we have to answer to very tight scrutiny. Human rights is one of those. Um, the, the, the narrative was that this, this, this um, administration in the U.S. at large is, writ large, is focused on economic prosperity, getting rich, and all those things. And there's nothing that says you can't do both. But when you take decisions, you do them uh, with, with a background of what is the values involved. You always consider the values here. And so, again, uh, the, the cynics and all those have a point. I think it keeps it healthy. It keeps us thinking about what we're doing. But if you look at religious freedom, if you look at human rights, if you look at my portfolio that includes Tibet, Xinjiang, and other places like Burma with the Rohingya and other things, we don't shy away from that stuff. We attack those things head on. And at the same time, we look at our own system and, and make sure that we're addressing those as well. And so it really strikes me as just completely, as my friend calls it, pre-ironic that the MFA spokesman calls America racist and says, you know, we have these massive, and we do, we have significant issues that we need to address. And I am not, you know, whitewash that. But then if you've ever lived in the PRC and you've seen how that works and, and what, how that, I mean, the, the fact that there were uh, Africans living in Guangzhou and there was a rumor that uh, Africa was a, you know, a disease vector for the return of, of Corona to China. And they kicked them all out of their houses and they're living on the streets. I mean, it, it pales. So let's get past the moral equivalency, equivalency uh, which they're very well happy to play off of. And let's look at facts and, and draw real comparisons. So I mentioned in the introduction, of course, that you are a retired general, uh, Air Force general. You, you flew F-16s? I did. And I flew Vietnam era F-4s, which they again speak. And f Fours, those, those are, which, are there any left flying? I mean, I remember going around Asia and the Japanese still had some and Taiwanese, I think, had some. Anyway, are there any left? No, I'm pretty sure the F-4s are out of everybody's inventory. Ooh. It was a magnificent airplane. Oh, well, well, we could reminisce, but I, I want to, I do, I do want to bring you back a little bit, uh, even though you sit at Foggy Bottom, bring you back just a little bit to your, your majority of your career, which was uh, security issues, and just ask about the uh, South China Sea. I mean, it, you know, that was really, I think, the turning point for Americans to begin the reassessment of China, that, that after uh, being promised that they weren't going to build islands and they weren't going to militarize the islands, well, sure enough, Beijing went ahead and, and took territory from the Filipinos, obviously they taken from the Vietnamese. They built these islands, they militarized islands. But again, it, it's sort of been pushed off the front pages as, as we've dealt with other issues. Um, but there's a lot of concern that the balance of power has shifted fundamentally in the South China Sea against free and open uh, navigation, against the United States and allies. Well, what's your assessment of, of where we stand today with the South China Sea? 
Well, let me start off by noting that uh, in this 15 minute, 15 minutes of the same media cycle that we live in, um, slow moving strategic trends are very difficult to pick up. They, they get missed. And, and it's not just the, the, the American people, but it's the government too, as you know, and, and you too. We all have a relatively short attention span and we end up you know, gravitating to the thing, uh, the most immediate crisis. And so a strategic approach that uh, you know, makes slow changes over time has a better chance of succeeding than one like a national security law in Hong Kong where you impose something in very quickly. Uh, that's gonna get everybody's attention. So South China Sea has been bubbling for a long time. In my reckoning, it's been bubbling since 1999. You mentioned my military time. So when I was a major, I went to the Air Command Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama. We were just required in our year master's course there to write a paper on a subject. The subject that was near and dear to my heart was South China Sea. So I wrote a paper advocating for a more uh, active neutrality in South China Sea. At the time, we were, you know, we maintained pure neutrality. We don't take a point. We don't take a, a stand on sovereignty or, or other claims. Um, and it just seemed, and it wasn't me. It was people here at State Department who were already thinking about this after the 2016 uh, tribunal ruling that happened to mesh with my own uh, interests. And so, you know, this policy change wasn't something that came up in, uh, in, in a week. It was a full year of, of working through this thing and making sure it was the right move, make sure it was legal, comported with our own interests and, and our own uh, policy stance and all that. And it simply reflected that American policy uh, is in line with international law, which that's what the 2016 ruling noted. And the reason we did it uh, is to, one, support those smaller countries in the region who in 2010 heard Yang Jiechi tell them, you're all small countries, China's a big country, and that's a fact. And they believe me, that is still ringing in the ears of the Aussies. Um, and that's been the approach so far with the code of conduct that you know, was, they were slow leaking and all of a sudden got to get done right now and, and all these things. And so we're simply getting on the right side of, of uh, history. We're, we're reflecting our own interests and make sure that we reflect that maritime claims, this is a reflection on maritime. Maritime claims support uh, U.S. interests, which are what? Freedom of uh, good services, freedom of navigation, uh, resolution of disputes through law and, and through dialogue and not through force uh, and all those things. So it seemed like a natural fit. So we're, we're getting close to the uh, allotted time we have for you because we know you're, you're busy and running around doing a lot of things. I'd like to ask two more questions. The first one I would like to ask gets back a little bit to this question of reciprocity. And uh, it is also a sea change in how both the U.S. government and I think U.S. society is beginning to uh, deal with China. And that's the question of China's, uh, and when I say China, I'm talking about Beijing, of course, Beijing's influence campaigns, the propaganda campaigns. At Hoover, we've actually done a lot of work on that. We're continuing to do work on that. Um, but you also have have weighed in uh, very strongly with policy changes um, regarding, for example, uh, the Confucius Institutes, uh, the number of, uh, of uh, journalists who can be in the country, lots of different things. So can you just give us a, an update on how the administration is approaching the question of, of continuing to counter uh, Beijing's influence and in propaganda campaigns. That is, uh, I know you put, you've written some things on that, but I, I would refer anybody who is interested in that question to the Silent Invasion, Clive Hamilton's book from 2018, I think. 
fantastic book. And just the opening uh, is eye-watering, talking about how the Olympic torch is going through Sydney and how the United Front work system that was well-established in Australia at the time brought out a whole bunch of uh, students who probably against their will uh, were forced to go out there and beat up protesters who objected and who wanted to voice their free opinion on what they thought of the PRC hosting Olympics. Uh, that that uh, vignette, uh, it, it's, the way it's written in that book should clear up any questions about uh, you know, Chinese adverse influence in other countries uh, as it tends and it tries. And this isn't a long-term, I mean, it's amazing how the foresight, I give them great credit for that strategic view to start this so long ago uh, in schools, in government, in school boards, in junkets to the PRC to get people to see what they want to be shown and, and those things. And so you, you, until you understand that, and I don't think you really understand it until you've lived in the PRC, until you understand what their vision of, of the world is, until you see what um, they are doing with Xinhua and CCTV and CGTN. And if you ask them, let's use that example, media, so-called media. If you ask them, uh, I'll show you quotes from both uh, the ambassador here and others, what is the role of Chinese media in the world? It's their job is to present a positive view of China to the world. To me, that describes a diplomat. Uh, uh, the journalist's job is to report what they're seeing in whatever country they're in back to their home and to the world and say, here's what's going on and here's why you care. Just that dichotomy tells you that the mindset in making sure that people's awareness and understanding of what the PRC is doing comports with their particular uh, desire. So nobody's alerted, nobody's um, overly concerned, and nobody resists or pushes back. I, for one, would rather hear the straight news and say what you will about, you know, the American media or Western media. And yes, it is biased, but you can at least get the real story if you read broadly, which back to critical, critical thought, that's one of the things I'd love to talk about on another show, uh, to one, defeat Chinese propaganda because it is insidious and you, uh, you have to read it with a jaded eye, but also to, to approach social media. My kids, I really want them to think critically about how they approach social media so we don't have the the problems with trolls and other things that, that are, are related. Well, that could be that could be a whole conversation, especially as we come up to the election and, and what we're doing. But I wanted to wrap up, though we you know would love to keep you for for hours. But I'd like to wrap up with a, basically an assessment, a self grading. Um, you've been in the job for a year, uh, very quickly confirmed, as you noted, uh, and you know moved through the system. But it's been three years now that uh, that the administration has been. Uh, gingerly feeling its way uh, along this path. Um, where would you, how would you grade yourself? What's, what's the assessment about how far you've come, the achievements you've had, what hasn't worked, and maybe most importantly, where we go in the future? And this is for me or the administration? Well, both. I mean, you know, for you personally, as well as as you see the, the, the big, broader questions that your colleagues and you are all dealing with. Well, let me just say that uh, the reason I'm here today is I was recruited by a guy down the hall leave him anonymous here, but it's also, was part of the administration uh, since 17. Um, and I was happily retired in Hawaii. I had a great job, my family, my home. They're all still back there, by the way. I'm here by myself. And the reason I came back was I saw how the, the president and the administration were dealing with the PRC in a trust but verify, or as the secretary said last week, distrust and verify, uh, and how we handled the first meeting at Mar-a-Lago. 
in that the Chinese proposed, as they always do, dialogues. And, you know, personally, I knew those dialogues would result in nothing uh, that, you know, suited our needs. Dialogues and, and things like the 100-day plan. As we got to the end of the 100-day plan, I was just cringing because I know in all past experience, since I've been doing this, we would take some, some shell of it and say, okay, this is something, it's not what we wanted, but it's something small and we can work with this. And the president said, no, this does not comport to what the American people need. It does not support uh, America's interests, uh, American prosperity. And, and so he said, let's go back, and do a, uh, let's do a more fulsome job of negotiating what really is a fair economic relationship. And that's what, when I saw that, and when I saw subsequent negotiations, when I saw how he dealt with North, how the administration dealt with North Korea, uh, I was in Hawaii at the time for that, uh, and using uh, a language that the North Koreans understand, taking a strong stance and not being ashamed of who we are and what we stand for or why we do it. Uh, that to me was a, uh, those were all positive messages. I think if you, again, good, I, I like your approach as you look at the whole four years and you look at where we started and where we are today. And I think we accomplished, I mean, a, a lot. And I mean, seriously, we accomplished many very solid uh, security outcomes in my AOR for sure, uh, without breaking any glass because it's all been deliberately. It's it, it it's it's not ready shoot aim. It's part of a very deliberate strategy, and you can read it in the national security strategy. And I mean, H.R. McMaster is out there. He gets great credit for for a really nice document, uh, well thought through, and it's being executed. And so again, let's go back and compare compare the strategy with what's been happening, and I think you'll see they track just. Nice. I, I think there's going to be a lot, actually, of uh, historical uh, reassessment uh, that would actually look and, and look at the ways in which the administration was very deliberate in in two steps forward, one step back, meaning giving space and and uh, time for Beijing to respond. It did not. Uh, turned the dial up to 11 immediately. It didn't do it on trade. It didn't do it on cyber. It didn't do it on a lot of things. And instead, uh, laid out the endpoint that it wanted to get to, but but allowed for opportunities for Beijing uh, Beijing to self-correct. And in a lot of cases, it didn't, it, which is when I think the, the reciprocity policy really was fully adopted and firmly adopted. So I think I think there's going to be, this will be a, a clear break point in U.S.-China relations. I don't mean that a breaking off point, but a break point in between what came before and where we're going to be going uh, now. Uh, clearly, you've played a major role in that. We'd love to continue talking with you, uh, but for uh, speaking on behalf of John Yu, who's not here today, Assistant Secretary Dave Stilwell, we are, are really honored that you came and spent some time with us on the Pacific Century. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.